Welcome to Madison Voices. Theater is a reflection of society and the times in which we live. We give voice to the artist's perspective on art, theater, family, and life. We want to take this time to celebrate the talent, passion, and stories of those who are part of the Madison Theater family. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Angelo Fraboni, Artistic Director of the Madison Theater at Malloy College. We're changing things up this week, and we talk to a lot of great artists, but this week, we're going to talk to one of our designers, Ed McCarthy. Please welcome him. Hi, how are you, Ed? I'm uh, as good as can be expected. Thank you. Yeah, these times are kind of crazy. Uh, Ed has done a lot of our lighting designs, but he's not just done lighting design at the Madison Theater. You've done it all over the country. Uh, I think you first did Malloy College for our original gala. I mean, you've been with me since the original gala, but we first met in Cats 27 years ago. Uh, just about, yeah. And what were you doing in Cats at that time? Um, at the time, I was working as a stagehand backstage as an electrician on the show. Um, my family has a long history of technical theater. And uh, so I spent, you know, a good portion of my childhood, my high school years and college years working as a stagehand. And then uh, tried to leave the business, got an undergraduate degree in economics and biology. That didn't work out too well. Came back into the business and uh, ended up eventually going from uh, being a stagehand into being a designer through a series of amazingly wonderful circumstances and contacts and opportunities. But when I met you, I was, yeah, I was, I think I was just, I was still in graduate school probably when we met. Right. Um, I remember you studying backstage. You always had your books out. Yeah, or sleep. That would have been me. <laughs> That's always good. The stagehand sleeping during the show. Uh, you know why? Because we're all like graduate students or something. Exactly. <laughs> or maybe not. But you didn't start. You didn't start as a stagehand. You were a dancer, if I recall. I, y- yes, I was in high school and college. I was. Uh, thinking seriously about becoming a performer and uh, spent a lot of time taking a lot of dance classes, you know, around New York City in the mid 80s. All the classic people that, you know, we talk about now, of course, none of your none of your people watching the show will know any of these names. (laughs) But setting tap with Phil Black and jazz of Chuck Kelly and ballet of Jay Norman and, you know, and Betsy Haug and all these other people. And, uh, I, and I just, I decided, you know, eventually that I liked, uh, class more than I liked performing and auditioning. So I kind of just let it go. Uh, I still, I like I liked the physical challenge of it, but it didn't thrill me to get up in, uh, in front of people and do it. Right. But what's fascinating, what's, what's fascinating to me, Ed, is that, you, here you wanted to be a performance major, but you decided not to. You start becoming a stagehand. Then you go to school for economics and biology, and then you end up a lighting designer. I mean, how, what what was that? What, what? How did you get into lighting? Um, well, I, I mean, I had all through college, I had worked part-time as a stagehand, and uh, – on many shows on Broadway in different theaters. Uh, and so I worked with a lot of great designers over the years. 
um, but in a different capacity. And I got to watch a lot of great designers work over the years. And I, I've always loved lighting um, in the background, as it were. And uh, when I was an undergrad at NYU in economics and biology, they're, they're, the only outlet for theater in the university was a group called the Washington Square Players, which was the university-wide theater amateur theater group as it were. You know, there was no, I mean, there was Tisch School of the Arts and, but it, all the pro performances and productions at Tisch, you had to actually go to Tisch to be part of. This is the one chance for biology majors and business majors and whoever to actually be in a show, just like right. a regular college would do. And uh, so I, I worked on a lot of their shows in, in their shows, backstage on their shows and became part of their, um, um, administrative committee, which was part students and part faculty. And also on the faculty was a man named Hal Easton, who was a PhD candidate for production through the Department of Educational Theater, which is not part of Tisch. It's actually teaching people to teach theater as opposed to teaching people to do theater, which I always thought was a bit odd, but it exists. It was there. It's part of the School of Education. And um, he gave me the opportunity to go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with a group he was putting together. And so for three summers, I spent six to eight weeks every summer out uh, in Edinburgh, uh, rehearsing in London and then going up to Edinburgh for three or four weeks. And the first year we did Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> I played Schroeder nice. and, did the, and did the lights. And then the second year we did... Uh, two shows. We did Pippin and we did Uncommon Women and Others, a Wendy Wasserstein play. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in Pippin and I did the lights for both. And then the third year, he did six shows and I just did the lighting because I was like, I cannot be in the show and light six shows and rep. Uh, so I gradually got into it. Then he did some shows off-Broadway that I lit and um, and it was just sort of on the back burner but I really enjoyed it. And then when I got the job at Cats, I said, this would probably be a good time, if ever, to go back to school because I had a real job. I had an income. It was steady. It wasn't going anywhere. And so I went down to NYU and I applied and uh, I got in. And then three years later, I got out and you know, started doing all the associate work that designers do when they get out of school, you know, working for designers and trying to make a name for yourself. And, you know, 20 years, something later, I'm here. Yeah. One thing, 20 years. Uh, yeah. Well, one thing I know. One thing I know about you is you're one of the fastest programmers. Can you, you know, for our listeners, what's the difference between programming and designing? Because we'll talk about that when you when we start talking about your TV work. Because you're a lighting director, not necessarily the designer, but and and it's programming. Just explain some of that technical stuff for. Well, yeah. Well, lighting now is all, of course, computerized, like a lot of things are in this world. Um, so every light that turns on in the show is being controlled by a computer. It's a very, it's a customized proprietary lighting console. So it doesn't have just your standard keyboard. It has special keys and special attributes to be able to control the lights in a pretty fast way. And now as you have more and more moving lights on in a show and more and more LED fixtures that are changing color and all those more advanced types of lights. It's getting harder and harder to sort of maintain everything and 
wrangle things quickly. So there are people who have really specialized in programming and that's all they do is sit behind the board and they take instructions from the designer as to what lights to bring up and what color to put them in and where to put them and what time you want them to come up in or fade out in. And so it's really, it's, programming is a very separate thing now. And a lot of the good programmers are actually also designers, but they uh, have decided for many reasons. A lot of times it's just money. Uh, you can make a lot of money if you're a good programmer, particularly on Broadway. You know, they can make $700 a day working on Broadway. Of course, you don't work, you know, 50 weeks a year either. You work, you know, you're off six. a lot. Yeah. You know, you're in tech for six weeks and then you're, you could be off for a month or two months and then, you know, something else comes up. But um, they, the good programmers have a, have a way of being able to get in and and set up their lighting system and set up the consoles so they can access everything quickly. And then, and the, the best ones actually work almost as your associate. They act, they contribute to what you're doing as opposed to just taking orders from you. You know, I, I much prefer to work with a programmer who will make suggestions to me, like, you know, or they might see something that I'm missing, like, you know, no, oh, there's this light hitting that thing over there. And do you, do you want that? Or, you know, and they're also often they're up in the balcony a lot um, because they like to have a good view of the floor mm-hmm. of the stage because a lot of times the floor can get messy with all sorts of different lighting things going on. And you might not see that in the orchestra where you're sitting. So by them being up in the balcony, they have a better view of that. And so they can also keep me honest about what's going on upstairs. You know, for Malloy, I end up doing a lot of my own programming because it's such a fast process. <laughs> yeah, talk about that. I mean, I mean, we we take shows in, in sometimes hours, not just in hours. Right? So on Broadway, before you start, on Broadway, you can have three to six weeks of tech. If it goes out of town, you can have three months out of town to relight and do things. So... And at Malloy, we we sometimes have to do shows like the Princess Show, for instance. We do in three hours. We have only three hours in the theater. Yeah, you know, a lot of times on Broadway, you might spend three days on one number, right. one big musical number. You know, um, but uh, it's also because you got me involved at the beginning at Malloy when it was still under construction. I remember walking into that building and it wasn't finished yet, and right, and I put together a rep plot. A repertory plot for the college, you know, that would stay up in the air 190% of the time, say, right? Um, and could be used for many kinds of different concerts and different kinds of shows. And so I know the space really well and I know the rig really well and I know how to use it. So it's easier for me to just go up and just do it. You know, it's faster for me to just do it than it is to have to tell somebody what I want, you know. Right. And sometimes, and sometimes we don't have necessarily the budget to hire an, an additional programmer for you. Um, but let's talk about, I mean, a friend of yours or acquaintance of yours and mine, because I worked with him in the full Monty, Terrence McNally, uh, just passed away, which is a sad thing. Um, um, but you met him through uh, a friend of yours. Yeah, yeah, I actually I was working out of right out of a grad school with a company called Rattlestick Theater Company, which still exists, and they do quite a few shows down uh, in the village. 
in their home base there. And I lit probably the first 14 or 15 shows that they produced. And it was an, it's an interesting group. It was a group of playwrights who weren't able to get enough interest in their own shows from the companies that existed at the time. So they started their own theater company and they would all take turns either, you know, whoever was being the playwright that month or two months, you know, would, would concentrate on that, but they acted as dramaturges. They acted as press, maybe in the basement, looking stamps onto the flyers. I mean, it was very, it was down to earth kind of, you know, gritty, let's put on a show, you know, and it worked. And the, you know, gradually the company built up a, a really good reputation and I would do quite a bit of work, but they don't do it that way anymore. Now they're like all the other theater companies. <laughs> they have their press reps and they have, you know, and they hire people out um, and bring in, you know, writers from outside and do, right. you know, they do readings and they do workshops and they, you know, develop plays as well as producing them. Um, but anyway, but one of the, one of the playwrights was a man named Gary Bonasorte. And I lit two or three of his plays in that about three year pro period. Um, and at the time, uh, he was a partner of Terence McNally. And Terence was a big supporter of Rattlestick. He believed very strongly in uh, helping bring up young playwrights and developing new voices. And so he spent, he spent a lot of his own personal um, time and contacts and, and money and uh, supported the theater company for quite a while. Um, Sadly, Gary passed away at a very young age of a brain tumor. Um, and uh, yeah, but but I've known Terrence, I knew Terrence since 19, I don't know, 96 or 97, probably. Right. You know, and he was a generous, generous person. Nice he was. man. Very nice, very, very nice man. Yeah, amazingly down to earth and, and modest and, uh, and was a voice that we needed, you know, and, when we needed it absolutely absolutely but at the rattlesnake snake or stick sorry rattlestick theater their lighting plot doesn't have a lot of convention or not a lot of moving lights not a lot of intelligent lights i mean no, I'm, sure, I'm sure they have some color changing lights now that they use periodically or they rent you know they rent additional gear as needed but it was very basic very simple yeah so light design for a show at the rattlestick and designing a show for Broadway. I mean, talk about the differences and the challenges on each of those. Well, I mean, the. I mean, that's a leap. That's a leap. But. It's, it's it's a big leap. Yeah, I you know you, whenever you approach a project, the first thing you have to think about is scale, right? So you're you're looking at you know everything from the scenery to the costumes to the lighting to the space you're in. Uh, what is this, what is the scale of this piece, right? So you're not going to have to worry in a theater like Rattlestick that has a 18 foot wide stage and a 12 foot high grid that you're going to have 36 rockets out there. You have to light, you know, or you know these huge dance numbers. They're just not going to do that kind of a show. They don't have the space. They don't have the dressing room space. They don't have the physical ability to do that. So they don't even think about doing you know that. They don't do revivals of any get your gun there, you know. Um, so you, you start, you know, they'll do very small pieces two two people, you know, two person shows, three person shows, um, and they're much more intimate and they're much, and they're more, more, you know, drama and comedy and often very little music usually. Um, we know, well, I, they, we, they, 
one show with a big dance number, but that was an odd piece. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, uh, um, so you, you just, you have to approach it in a very sort of dramaturgical way. You look at, you read the, you know, you read the script and you say, okay, what is, you know, what is, first of all, what is the environment these people are in? And then secondly, what is the sort of emotional environment that you have to try to create as well on top of that? Uh, and sometimes it's very simple. It's just a drawing room comedy. And sometimes it's something much more, much, you know, deeper and, and more introspective uh, or a show like Miss Julie or something where you actually have to really delve into their minds a little bit and figure out what is this sort of psychological landscape they're in, not just the physical landscape. Right. Um, and the set designer helps a lot with that as well. So you're, you're playing off of the set that you're given and then what the director wants to see out of it as well. You know, um, we take a lot of our cues from what the director tells us and asks us. Yeah. I mean, which makes sense. It makes sense. But when you light, I mean, the first thing you ever did for me was a little cabaret up in the Poconos. And that's when we came into a place and we had to sort of build build the entire rig um, from scratch. And um, we had to find dimmers, we had to find power. I mean, there was a lot of challenges with with a show like that. It came to Off-Broadway with Singular Sensation with Carol Channing, uh, which you lit down, lit down at the Village Gate, if I'm not mistaken. And... Um, Every show that you do must have different challenges. I mean, you, I, you, I, you've done opera. You've done, uh, you've done opera for me. So the difference between lighting an opera, like La Boheme, and lighting a Nutcracker or a dance show for Alvin Ailey, I mean, what you know, you know, you're looking at different position, different lighting plots, different. You know, how how do you approach those different things? Because you have to teach this. Also, you teach at NYU. I, well, I, 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 but I teach a very specific thing at NYU. It's lighting for television, lighting for a video, which is basically telling, trying to teach the students how to take what they know as theater lighting designers and make them understand how to make that work for the camera. Right. You know, how to translate that into something that the camera can see and do a broadcast quality version of whatever it is they were trying to do, which is a little more specific. Um, but the, uh, when, you sort of learn gradually, of course. And if, if you go to if you if you go watch pretty much any dance show, you will see that most of the lighting is side light, right? right. Huge amounts of side light, usually very low cross light side light on on the bodies, because you're trying to sculpt bodies in three dimensions, and so you don't lose any of the positions, any of the, the shapes that the choreographer is trying to make. And so it's really, it's about sculpting those bodies out of, of three, out of darkness, out of a three-dimensional space and making them pop. Um, and then you're also reinforcing either the music or the, the style of the piece, or, you know, there, may, there might be an emotional subtext to it as well. Or sometimes it might be a, a ballet like Romeo and Juliet or Nutcracker, where you have scenery that has to be lit just like any other show. And you have an environment that has to be lit like any other show. But you still have these bodies in space that have to be lit. And choreographers expect to see that, you know, it's you can't not do that, right? Um, and opera, it's very different. Opera, again, it depends stylistically on a lot of times what the director wants. Um, but in your, if you're talking about classic 
19th century operas like Carmen and Traviata and all those, you know, there's a, there is again, a certain style to them. Uh, and a lot of it is really about creating this beautiful environment for people to sing in and create beautiful sound and making sure the audience knows who's singing, like making sure that there's a spotlight on the singer, <laughs> you know, who's singing. Um, and creating this, you know, creating an ambiance, creating, uh, a, a, you know, when any of the, any of those heroines in opera die, you want to make sure people feel it. And, you know, lighting is a very powerful emotional tool to make people feel something, you know, they might not understand the words cause they're in Italian, but you can make them understand, you know, the, the importance of a moment with lighting. Oh, I agree. It's, it's kind of universal. I agree. I agree. I think the greatest lighting is you don't even notice it's there, but you feel it, you know, uh, you feel it. And I mean, the color palettes, I mean, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about color palettes and stuff like that, but that definitely brings the audience into a certain mood or a different, different feeling. Uh, you know, it's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I'm a lighting fiend, you know, I love lighting. So you, that's why you and I get along well, because I love lighting. Because um, I, I really do. I like to pull at people's heartstrings and I like to, you know, do that type of work. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned teaching at NYU and talking about TV. I mean, you've done everything from the Grammys to the Tonys, you know, to uh, specials with, you know, with Michael Buble and everything. Like that. What is the difference between just take why can't why can't I just take what's on stage and put it in front of a camera and why won't it look the same? What, what, what is the well, difference? I think we're all discovering that in this world of zoom and Skype and self-isolation right now. We're looking at each other, we're looking at each other on our, on our computer monitors and going, Oh, huh, do I really look that bad? Or, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, I had a, I had, I had a zoom meeting with my students at NYU and one of them, I, I couldn't see her face cause she was sitting with her back to the windows and the camera was adjusting the automatically adjusting the iris of the camera to the window light coming in. And so she was completely dark. The windows look great, but she was completely dark. And I'm like, Betsy, what have I taught you the last six weeks? <laughs> you need a light in front of you. She's like, I know, I know. But she's, you know, she's at her parents' house in New Jersey and this is what she had to deal with. I'm like, okay, well next week. I said, next week you better have a light. So you can get them on Amazon for 29 bucks. Exactly. So um, it's really about understanding what a camera can and can't do for you, right? I mean, a camera, the, the amazing thing about a camera, about film and television is that you have uh, the one thing you have that you can't get on, on stage is a close-up, right? So all of a sudden, as an audience member, you're, you're really getting in to see people's emotions. To see, and, and if you watch television, you'll see that. 80% of what you see is going to be from the elbows up. Right. It's close up, close up, close up. You know, they start with a bigger shot. They tell they establish where you are, what's going on. And then the next cut is a close up on the person talking. And then the next cut is the other person talking. And that's, you know, and then at the end they might zoom back out again, but that's what television is. And that's what makes it powerful. Um, and so you can't tell people not to do that, obviously. Um, as much as you might like to have the big wide shot that shows all the pretty lights that are going and have, you know, spinning and changing color, like in a big musical number on a, on an award show. In the end, they're still looking at the people who are singing and they're pulling in and, and right. cameras going in to that 
the same thing we're on right now, right? We have, it's like, you know, chest up, right? Yep. Um, and so you have to understand that's what, that, that becomes the most important thing that you do is to make sure that close-up looks good on camera. Um, everything else is secondary. So once you understand that and you understand what the camera can and can't do, so the camera is, it's an artificial eye, right? So, and they're getting better, but they only have so much range. They can only get taken so much light or so little light and still, you know, be able to function properly. Unlike your eye, when you walk out the door from, you know, out, out of your house with the lights off to daylight, you know, afternoon, sunny day, your irises automatic, your eyes automatically adjust. So you can see. Um, the fact that it's a different color temperature than the inside of your house. Your house has tungsten lighting. You go outside, it's daylight or it's rainy or it's cloudy. And everything is a completely lit in a different light. But your eye adjusts. And so people don't look blue or amber. They look like people, right? I mean, your eye, you actually, well, it's really your brain that's doing it. But it's the optics in your eye that tell the brain, this is where we are. And your brain adjusts. Um, the camera doesn't do that. It can't do that. You have to tell the camera everything you want to do. You have to tell the camera what setting to be at, what iris to be at, what aperture to be at, what shutter speed to be at, what color temperature to be at. All these things have to be put into the camera so it knows how to light something, how to, how to see something. And it can only be so adjustable. So when we're working for, for television, we have to start with some basic level of light that works for the cameras that they that the producers and the cameramen have chosen to use and then go from there you know and what what's happening now is that uh for most of these big specials you would watch like the super bowl or the grammys or tony's we rent a television broadcast truck which comes with all the hardware we need to be able to broadcast the show nationally on national television uh but it also comes with a set of cameras, like six cameras at least. Um, and those cameras basically travel with the truck. They come with the truck. And then we rent additional cameras as needed for big shows. Because on, like, on, on the Tonys last year, we had, I think, 13 cameras. Uh, but those cameras are primarily used for sports. Right. Because that's what the trucks are primarily used for on a sort of on a week to week basis as you go through the year. And so the cameras are designed to work really well following a football in the stadium or following a golf ball at 100 yards and being able to stay focused on that golf ball. How does it do that? Well, it, it has what we call depth of field, right? On, on a, a television camera or even on a, if you have a DSLR, if your iris is way open, you have a very shallow depth of field. That's how you take pictures of, you know, uh, like roses and you want the background to be all blurry or something, right? It's, it's a, what they call bouquet effect. It's when you have your iris wide open, but the wider your iris is open, the less light you can use because then, because more light is getting into the camera. And then vice versa, if your iris is closed, you're up to F22, F26, F28. That means very little light is getting in the camera, but you have infinite depth of field. Mm -hmm. So when you're working on a golf course, 
and it's the masters and it's a nice sunny day, there's a lot of light. So you don't need to be iris open. You can iris in and you can follow that golf ball at 200 yards and it stays sharp, even though it's traveling away from you or to the side of you, you can actually keep it clear. And that's what those cameras are designed to do primarily is follow golf balls. Right. I, I, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit, but you know what I'm saying? It's they're, they're meant to do that. And when we bring it into uh, indoor theater where the scenery is built quickly and maybe not perfectly, and we don't necessarily want to have that much detail being broadcast. Um, we, that means we have to open up the iris in order to have less depth of field, which means now we have to have less light. And the better the cameras get, the less light we can use. So the lighting has been getting darker and darker in television for the last 50 years. It used to be we have a measurement called foot candle, which measures how much light exists on a certain in a certain space. Um, and it's basically it's the amount of light uh, emitted by a candle and then, you know, one foot away from that candle or two feet away from the candle. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but in the in early days of television, uh, 200 to 500 foot candles was sort of normal broadcast level. Then last year's Tony's, we were at 28 foot candles. Wow. That's a big leap. Which tells you, you know, the, what has happened, you know, technologically in the video field. So if you watch a Broadway show, the follow spot on a person on Broadway is probably about 400 foot candles. So how do you take, if you try to broadcast that, that person just turns into a big white blob, right? And if you adjust the camera so that the, that star, that 400-foot candle light is good and, and balanced properly, the rest of the set goes black around them, right? So we have to basically compress our images in a way so that the, the maximum amount of light isn't that much greater than the minimum amount of light. Which makes for a boring scene if you're watching it live because everything looks a little, you know, sort of bland, right? Mm -hmm. But it looks great on camera, right? You know, because you don't lose anything. I mean, this happens with still photography as well. When we would do B-roll for uh, and press photos for Mamma Mia uh, everywhere in the world, we went. We would have to turn up the back, you know, turn on the psych lights to full and take the follow spots down to half intensity and, add, you know, and add fill light for people. And nothing, it was never shot exactly the way we would do it on, on stage. We always had to tweak it and adapt it so that it looked good for the camera, still camera and video cameras. Wow. So since you mentioned Mamma Mia, how many shows have you done of that? Uh, I've done every, every Western Hemisphere production and two cruise ships and two cruise ships. Yeah, I've been two of my own even after, you know, two of the unofficial Nava that has been released to, to the public domain, you know, and regional theaters are doing it. I've done two of my own version. Yeah. Uh, so I've done like Nava? 19, 20 of them. I don't know. Oh my God. It's like an annuity <laughs> for you though. It's, it's great. It's, it's, it's been great. Yeah. It's been a really great ride since I've been working on it on and off since 1999. So now is that show, is that a basic plot that was given to you that you just program in and you it's it's sort of rote or is or do you have leeway on that? It's, how, does, it's, how does something it like that, that work? Way. Um, 
And of course, it started much bigger. Um, the Toronto company was quite large, and the first national tour was quite large. And then Broadway was the biggest, and, and Broadway in Vegas were the biggest versions of the show we ever did. But by the time the, sh- the tour closed about two years ago, and it's and apparently it's coming back in a year or so, um, it had to fit into four trucks. So the look of the show, even though it looked like Mamma Mia, it was very different in in the way it was built. So right. could build, you know, building it to tour is very different, you know. So, but all the effects were the same. And so if you looked at any one, any given scene, it looked like the original looked smaller, you know. But um, it all looked it looked the same, which is Whoops. kind of crazy. It's interesting because you talk about tours and and sit down companies. Now, on a tour, because of finances and stuff like that, you have to fit so much lighting in a truck. You know, you know what you 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 can only take out four trucks or two trucks or three trucks. And do you, is there what's the challenge? I mean, do you have to use some rep lot? Like when you come into a performing arts theater, say like the Madison Theater or or a, you know Fifth Avenue in in Seattle. Uh, do you use their rep plot or do you just strip everything out and just put up your toured plot? Um, the the major tours use their own equipment. It's it's too difficult to try to because you come you're coming with your own lighting console because it has a show pre-programmed on it, mm-hmm. just like you have your own sound console. Um, it's hard to sometimes it could be hard. You can't just take any light and you know, and replace it with another light because the parameters are different. The quality is different. Uh, so the 90% of the rig has to come with the show basically. So what we do is we bring in on Mamma Mia, we would bring in everything over the stage. Most, most theaters, when you rent a theater come empty, right? If you rent a Broadway theater, there's nothing in it. So everything right. and anybody goes to see a Broadway show Everything you see in that theater, every light, every speaker, you know, everything except for the seats and the walls are pretty much rented for that production. Uh, So we bring in everything overhead, all the the scenery, the lighting, sound gear that fits on the stage. Sometimes we'll use some of the lights. If if they have uh, house lights, house-owned lights out in the front, and we just need it for like a wash, or something, we can use their lights out in the cove or a balcony rail or something. Sometimes we'll, the electrician has the leeway to look at that and go, okay, well, we have this kind of light and they have this kind of light and they're close enough. So we'll, we'll just save some time and use theirs instead of using ours. Does that call come from the house or does that call come from the traveling electrician? It's the electrician who decides. Yeah. Uh, the house really has no say. The house has, has a technical rider they have to uh, abide by abide by and it has how many foul spots they have to have and they have and how they have to work and uh um how much power they have to provide and and where lighting consoles and sound consoles have to be in the theater so they have to sometimes lose seats you know take out seats in the back of the orchestra to be able to fit the technical requirements of the show like some shows need projectors on the rail on the balcony rail Right. And that means the balcony rail has to be rated for a certain amount of weight at a certain spot on the, on the balcony. Uh, and if they can't provide that, well, they have to provide it to get the show. But if, if it doesn't exist currently, they have to retrofit the, the theater to be able to do what the show needs. Which is why, you know, Phantom and Ms. Saigon and Les Mis, when they were touring around the country, 
they were responsible for renovating more big theaters in cities across America than any other shows ever. <laughs> Cause if because if you wanted to play your theater, you had to do what If they you did. wanted Phantom, you know, you had to be able to suspend a chandelier from the middle of the orchestra. If you wanted to do, have Miss Saigon in your theater, you had to be able to get a helicopter on stage, you know, and so theaters like the Paramount in Seattle, they just, they broke up, opened their back wall and they incorporated the alley behind the theater as part of the theater so they could tip the uh, helicopter for Saigon. You know, this is. <laughs> That's crazy. It, it's crazy, you know, but then those shows would travel with 28 trucks, you know, not four trucks, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, so. On tours, I've been, I've been on uh, quite a bit of tours. Um, I've been on out-of-town tryouts and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, load-in times. I mean, we're talking about a 28-truck tour is not going to load in in eight hours. But there's two or three truck tours or four truck tours that come in and have to be in at eight hours because they're going to be performing that night. So talk about the challenges there with lighting and and. Well, again, I mean, it's really about preparation, right? So you have to understand what – once you're told by the producers uh, what the what the touring schedule is going to be, you're given a set of parameters that you have to try to follow. So, like I just I did the School of Rock national tour uh, for Natasha Katz, uh, who did the show on Broadway and couldn't she wasn't available to do the tour, so I did it for her. And it was a six. It was supposed to be a six truck tour. It became a seven truck tour because of audio, not because of lighting. But the uh, parameters were you had to be in in about fifteen or sixteen hours, and you had to be out in eight hours. So they would go in on a Monday night. They would start loading the show in. They would continue starting Tuesday morning, and then they would do a show Tuesday night. Wow. Run it for a week or two weeks or sometimes four if they were lucky. And then Sunday night, they would load the show out, put on trucks. The trucks would start to move and they would get to the next city by Monday at five. And then they would do a, you know four hours on Monday night and then 10 hours on Tuesday before the next show. No, and I that's, mean, but we knew we had we they booked the show like that, so we knew we we had to be able to get in between Sunday and Tuesday, and you know x number of hours of touring of actual you know travel time, we had to be able to get the show in. So right. the whole show was designed to go quickly, right? So the, the the scenery had what they call speed decks, so the decks the pieces of the stage flooring go in quickly and lock in together very quickly. Uh, there's less automation than, or sometimes more automation, depending on the show, but uh, than you would have on Broadway because the automation is limited to certain parts of the stage. So that way they can only have, they only have to bring in so many automation motors and everything has to, you know, all the lighting is in trusses. So they can roll the trusses in from the truck, hang them off of motors, take them out to the right height, and then all the lights are pretty much pre focused within those trusses. So they don't have to get autumn, you know, each one doesn't have to get focused um, individually. So, you just, so what, you just hang them on a certain, uh, at a certain height and they're already yeah. basically focused? Exactly. We, you know, the, fir the first, the first city we spend three weeks on the show, right? I mean, the first city we have more time. So we spend a lot of time figuring out how to make it move faster. And that's part of the process of teching it is understanding this isn't going to work. How do we make this work? How is this going to, you know, and then I usually go on the first two moves 
to make sure that it can move right, you know, and they usually give us an extra day on the first two moves. So like we went from Rochester to Columbus, Ohio was the first move. And we had until Wednesday, we had an extra day so we could actually, you know, we hit a snag, you know, it was okay. We hadn't, we didn't lose the performance. Um, but, but eventually you have to walk away from it and they have to take over and the, the crew does a great job usually just maintaining it and making sure that it gets in and out as needed, you know. So have you had any major snags on these tours? Oh, yeah. Move from city to city? We've Tell me a- about one of those. <laughs> well, I, don't, I, I did a show once. It was very sad because it was actually a really good show. It was an Irving Berlin review. Um, that was only two trucks. Um and it was it was actually supposed to be one truck and it didn't fit. Uh, and we told them it, we told them it wasn't going to fit, but they still insisted and they ended up being two trucks. But it they didn't hire a very good production manager or technical director, and that basically kind of ruined the show because we played three weeks in Boston and the show did great, got great reviews, and it wasn't very, like I said it wasn't very big. Um, it was six people, a band of six, you know, a unit set and, um, a lot of costumes, but not a huge amount of lighting, you know, um, but they never, they would lose shows all the time. They couldn't get the show in fast enough because they didn't prep the show correctly the first time out. They had three weeks in Boston to be able to make sure that everything could move quickly and they didn't spend any time prepping it. And so it fell apart, you know, and I had to go, I had to go out and cut things and it still didn't work. And it was, it was a, sadly a disaster. Oh, that's yeah. terrible. The same thing with, uh, with White Christmas, the, the musical that was touring. Um, when we first opened White Christmas, it was a, a seasonal show. So it would open in some city and play for eight weeks and then close. Um because it's a, it's a Christmas. Well, it's not really a Christmas show, but it does take place mostly at Christmas. So even though it's not about Christmas, it, you know, with a name like that, it's hard to sell in July. So they would sell it from November to January, you know. Um, die hard. It's die hard. It's not die hard of the theater. Uh, yeah, kind of. Exactly. So they, um, at some point after we did about seven years of single stops, they decided they wanted to break it up and do a slightly smaller version, but it could play two weeks in four or five cities during that same period. And again, it was just wasn't built right. So it never, it lost performances in every city it moved to because the set was too big and it didn't, it didn't come together properly. And so you, you couldn't, you just, it was impossible to get the show in. It would load in on Monday and it wouldn't open until Thursday. Yeah. You people, I, I guess our listeners don't realize how much goes into theater and how much goes because when you talk about six or eight yeah. trucks you're saying why you know but sound could take an entire truck lighting could take an entire two trucks if, if necessary scenic but then you have costumes and you have luggage sometimes you're moving you're not just the cruise luggage but the cast luggage um oh, yeah trunks and you know there's a lot that goes into all the props theaters. and all the yeah there's there's you know oh, look props. at like school, school rock they had 18 you know students desks that had to be able to you know travel they're really important in the show you could not not have them right and, and they didn't or, fold up like a cardboard box 
did not. <laughs> no, people had to stand on them. They had to be you know, really, you know, sturdy and specially built and everything was customized and, but they still couldn't stack, you know, they still had to, they would build, they built these carts so they could travel into the trucks, but they still took up a lot of room, you know? Um, and like I said, it was supposed to be six truck tour, but because of audio, um, it became, they, they insisted on having more front of house uh, sound and it became seven trucks, which is a huge decision to make. Uh, yeah, it's it's very expensive, very, very, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year off your, you know, possible profit right. um, to have a truck for 50 weeks and a driver for 50 weeks a year. Um, but they, uh, but, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber was co-producing it. He wrote it and he's a composer and the sound is you know the most important thing to him and if his sound designer says it'll sound better he's willing to put up the money for it so great you know yeah. he wants to add a seventh truck <laughs> that's right and Andrew Lloyd Webber sort of gets what he wants I mean and he, kind of gets, he kind of gets what he wants yeah exactly so I mean we sort of touched on this before uh, I want to get to color tones and and gels and stuff like that and just the color palette of the different shows i mean you've done probably two three dozen shows for me here at the madison theater and you've done things as diverse as our a princess concert a dream is a wish princess concert which is that palette is just gorgeous you've done La Boheme, their opera. You even did a chorus line for us, which has a lot of white light, stark lighting. So talk about color palettes and 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 the differences and why, you know, what 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 approach do you look when you start giving us gel cuts and stuff like that? Well, it, it's a it's a couple of things. First of all, color color is very primal. I mean, people respond to color in a very deep sort of emotional way. And so it's a very important tool that we use. Um, and the colors signify a lot of things to us emotionally. Um, there's a reason why fire trucks are red or in some cases lime green because the eye sees lime green as the, the most strongest color that your eye can see. So if you really want people to see something, make it lime green and they'll notice it. Uh, but so and, the vests, like a construction right, vest. Right, exactly. Construction yeah. vests and all that are, yeah, exactly. So there's a certain amount of, you know, sort of just physics to it as well. But in the end, it's a very emotional response to something. So if I'm working on a show, I'm not going to talk about chorus line quite right like that because it's, it's very, it's a very specific kind of thing because we were trying to recreate something that was iconic and, and uh, needed certain elements to make it work the way it worked originally um but and those choices may or may not have been my might not have been my choices but it doesn't matter my job there was to make sure that it looked like a chorus line as opposed to look like my version of a chorus line right <laughs> but when you know besides the emotional content of a, of a musical number it's also looking at the costumes right so color in a, in a light will affect the way a costume looks so if I see somebody come out in a bright yellow gown as a princess, I'm not going to put a color on that that makes it turn muddy or ugly. Right. I'm going to give it a color that makes it pop and makes it look as beautiful as it, you know the person who spent all that time designing it wants it to look. Um, and you can so you, you you're limited in some ways by what you're given to light, you know. So um, 
But then there are times like I just did a show uh, at Paper Mill Playhouse, which was a musical review of Andrew Lloyd Webber's work called Unmasked. And the set was basically black with uh, trussing and exposed lighting. And everyone in the show were sort of funky versions of uh, what we would call concert blacks. Um, so they weren't quite tuxedos and gowns, but they were all basically dressed in black. So I was kind of free to do whatever I wanted because there was very little I could do that would make people look terrible or make the set look terrible. Um, but so then I could just use the, the um, emotional response I was getting from each of the musical numbers, or in that case, also my, uh, my knowledge of what those shows that the numbers came from looked like originally and tried to maybe reference those original shows as I did the lighting for them. So, uh, so they, they become like little insider lighting jokes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when they do a number from Phantom, you want to make it sort of feel like Phantom of the Opera, right? And I worked on the Phantom tour for eight years. So I know that color palette quite well, you know, or Sunset Boulevard or Cats or any of those other number, any of those other shows that Weber wrote, they each have their own distinctive style, uh, musically, but also the original shows as originally produced also have their own distinctive styles. And so I tried to honor that as well as we went through a show. Um, so there's a different, you know, a lot of different ways you can approach it. Um, but the main thing I try to do is make sure people look good. You know, it's like, that's the real key to this is making people look good, making costumes look good, making scenery look good. And, you know, there are shows where you don't necessarily need a lot of color to do that. And a lot of color might be inappropriate. Um, and then there are, there are shows where it's obvious that color is quite appropriate, you know, and most musicals give you that opportunity, you know, to actually explore and, and kind of go out there and do a lot of, have a lot of color, you know, cause as soon as people start to sing, you're kind of released from a certain reality. And so it doesn't really matter if somebody has a purple backlight on them, you know, which they wouldn't only have, you know, uh, <laughs> doing a realistic play in a realistic setting and they're, they're having realistic dialogue. You don't necessarily want to put a purple backlight on somebody because it wouldn't make any sense. And the audience would go, why is there a purple light on that person? You know? Right. So we're, you know, we have to take this, the show itself and figure out how to, how that show, uh, what, what the show needs to, to support the, the actual, uh, text now right now do you work with you obviously work with the scenic designer for the colors of his set you also work with the costume designer see what their colors are and that really affects the way you light things if if you have a dark set you light it you have different color palette for it than if it's like a bright dr seuss set for instance Talk a little bit about that. What are the challenges there? I mean, when you get your, you know, when you get the designs two weeks before. I mean, you know, the, the good and the bad thing about now nowadays is that we have automated technology. We have moving lights that can change color and change focus and all, all those things. And so it, it gives us tools that means we don't have to lock ourselves in too early into choices. Mm -hmm. um, in the old days, uh, as a, uh, right. The old, <laughs> when I was a young stagehand, a young designer, we didn't have any of those tools. And so what we would do is like Jules Fisher, the famous lighting designer, who was uh, the, the most famous example I have is he, he's a grand hotel. 
And what he did for Grand Hotel, which and what he did for all his shows, is he would hang two or three extra light, two or three extra pipes filled with lights that had no purpose when he did the light plot. And as the show was in tech, they would need a special. He would pick a light. They would take a gel and they would send the guy up on a ladder and they would focus that light where he wanted it and put the color in and then he would cue it into the show and then they would keep going. And so he had, you know, an extra 80, 100 lights in the air that he would use that he didn't know what he wanted to use it for necessarily because the light plot has to be in oftentimes before rehearsal starts. Right. And so you, you'll know what the scenery is, but you won't know what the staging is yet. Right. right. So you, you there's certain things you know you can cover ahead of time, but a lot of things you, you decide, oh, you want to have a, a, a pool of light for somebody at this moment. Okay, well, pick, up, pick a light and do it. And now with moving lights, you just pick one of the moving lights and put it where you want and then cue it in and keep going. And it's really easy and fast, uh, which has been, a, you know, but it also pushes everybody's expectations up a notch too, right? So now you can't say, I can't put a light there. Like, yes, you can. I just pick a light and put it there, right? You know? yeah. So we have to be a little more flexible too. Um, but you know, so when and when Grand Hotel actually when it changed theaters halfway through its run, and they were able to cut uh, 192 dimmers mm-hmm. that weren't being used, and which is a lot of money every week rental, and a whole bunch of lights that weren't being used because once a show was queued. They didn't take down all the unused stuff. It just set, set, it sits there because the rental is already agreed upon, right? And it's too expensive to try to get down the stuff you're not using. So they just left it up in the air until the show moved. And then they actually tracked through the show and figured out what they really needed. And they could cut everything else. That is that is a lesson. I mean, I, I remember when I was doing Cats cause with you, uh, there wasn't any intelligent lighting there. That was just all. They had like 900 units in the in the, I mean, there were so many units. I just remember looking. I've never seen that many. And I, uh, the standard plots now are, you know, I don't even know, but there's a lot less lighting because one intelligent or LED light can do the job of five or six. Yes, conventional that's lights. true. Right, right. But there's Would still you, there's. I mean, Broadway. There's still there's a lot of light out there. They put a lot of lights on, uh, you know, in that plot. Yeah. yeah. People also, you know, nowadays people want it brighter and louder. Right. You know, the expectations have, you know, boosted with, you know, microphone technology and music that is more either rock or pop oriented and less orchestral. Um, people expect it to be like School of Rock, expect it to be louder, you know, um, and with louder comes brighter. Right. Well, I just remember watching Mamma Mia on Broadway and that last scene where they brought bring on that last light thing. I mean, there's so many lights on that thing. I thought they only used it for the and what was it the the end? Uh, what do they call it? The mega mix. The mega mix. Yeah, and, and I was like, oh my god. Okay. Well, yeah. So there, but there are two. They had two layers there, right? So they had the the trusses that flew in, right, right, in, on Broadway, and those lights were only used for the finale. But a lot of the other finale lights were actually lights that were used for the rest of the show that were up in the air that were also on top of that were used for color changing and, and stuff. Right. And on the tour, we actually cut those trusses because we couldn't afford or the room or the time to rig them or anything else. And so what we would do is we would fly in the working trusses that lit the rest of the show 
and they would fly in to like a staggered height. So we actually exposed the trusses, which we had painted white and all the lights on the trusses were painted white um, and did the same idea, but with the working rig of the show. Mm-hmm. So, um, which worked great, actually. It worked really well. Yeah, it was, so, it was, it was, it was a great effect. I it's a great watching. effect. It is. It, really it is. is. Yeah. Um, one last thing we haven't talked about is a lot of these sets now, you know, we talked about colors, and a lot of them have projections, and that's got to add another layer of complexity to the way you light. Yeah, well, the biggest problem with projections is that it's usually front projection, right? Because right? Um, most theaters don't have the room to do rear projection because you need to have that much space behind the screen you're project or the you know the background you're projecting on to be able to put the projector to get the full stage width of the of the uh, the screen. So invariably it's front projection in most unless it's an led screen now which is a whole other level of of you know uh technology and it's actually self-lit like having a giant television set 30 you know 35 feet wide by 20 feet high Mm -hmm. at the back of your uh stage but so the um the the problem with with projections that you if you're too bright you will wash out the image but if you're too dim, then you see the projection, the projections being projected on the actors who are walking through it. You can't. It's very hard to avoid that. Um, for a projection designer to throw a projection across, you know, the entire background of a of a space, there's a cone of light that's coming out of that projector, and anybody in that cone is going to get some light on them which might not be very attractive because it's, it could be all different colors. It could be a tree. It could be, you know, water, who knows what it is. Right. So you have to have enough, it's pretty dim, but you have to have enough light on the people to sort of wash out that projections effect. Um, but still not be so bright that you wash out the actual image on the screen. So it's, I, I do a combination of two things. I use a lot of side light because the side light can light the person quite brightly, but the side light doesn't hit the screen. Obviously, the side light goes off and lands somewhere the other side of the stage. So by using a lot of side light, you, you can sculpt the people downstage of the screen and not worry about affecting the image too much. Um, and then um, – I try to start scenes uh, that use projections with less light and then build the light up gradually within the scene. So you establish the projection at the beginning of the scene where it's quite vivid and uh, quite bright and everyone in the audience understands exactly what it is. And then if you start building up light gradually on the people in front of it, once you've established what it is, that it stays in people's heads and the fact that you get, it gets washed out a little bit, doesn't affect it or hurt that much, you know, but it's a balance. You have to, you're constantly balancing and, you know, asking for, you know, again, if you have a brighter projector, it's great, except then it's also more light on the people. Right. So. That's it's, it's it's a challenge. I mean, it is, (laughs) excuse me. Um, what, what's your favorite type of show to light? I mean, I mean, you do such a variety. You do, like I said, you do ballet, you do dance, you do opera, you do Broadway, you do tours, you do regional. I like, I like musicals. I have to say, I do. I've I've always loved musicals. I've grew up 
work, working on them, working around them. Um, and there's something, maybe it's, maybe it's my dance background. The fact that I can count to eight, uh, <laughs> and all the little E end is in the middle between, you know, between the, uh, counts, uh, that musically I get excited about lighting a show that has a lot of great, you know, uh, music in it because then I feel like I can sort of just let that inform what I do. Um, but I'll, I'll light, you know, I'll light anything. I'll light a straight play. If I can, if I think it can make somebody feel something, I'll, you know, uh, operas. I love operas. I've, I've learned to love operas. It was hard at first because I'm, I'm not a very good reader of music. Mm-hmm. And everyone works off the score in opera, including the stage managers. And I mean, I haven't played an instrument since like eighth grade. I played the viola, you know, and <laughs> I never got that good at that. And, and, you know, so reading music, I can follow music. You know, I could, if you ask me what the note is, I can tell you what the note is. But just like in terms of like fast reading it, I, um, that's not me. So trying to keep up you know, going through scores of opera where it's like many, many staffs of different people singing and, and, and you know, trying to follow vocal score and you think you're on the right page and they're, they're five pages ahead because they're, it, you know, or, or you think you're five pages ahead, but they actually, you missed a little repeat symbol. And so they actually went back three times and <laughs> I'm like, you know, where, are, I just, I just tell the stage, man, where are we? You know, just, yeah. just tell me where we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's talking about being a dancer and musical. I mean, a chorus line has a lot of musical timing with the, with the lighting, especially with the spotlights, like in the fourth montage or the first montage. I mean, talk about the challenge of, of and the excitement of doing a show like a chorus line. Well, I'd always wanted to do it, um, some version of it. And yeah. when this came up and it turned out it was going to be directed and choreographed by somebody who had done what, 30 of them or something. Mm-hmm. And I worked with the original dance captain uh, and Louis. Yeah. yeah Louis. And he really wanted to make the show, you know, as close to what he remembered as chorus line being the real original Theron Musser lighting of chorus line, um, which is I- iconic. I mean, nobody messes with it. You know, uh, when they did the revival, people got all upset because Sheila had a backlight on her during at the ballet, which she never had before. And it's like, okay, guys, give it a rest. It's okay. You know, she can have a backlight on her because Natasha did it. And she, you know, she did all of it, everything that, that Theron Musser did, but she added some extra stuff as well because she knew that people expected it to be brighter than it was. It was very dim originally on Broadway because it was 1974 equipment, right? Uh, it was the audio was much dimmer. It was, you know, it was all, you know, area mics. Um, and people expect more now. So she understood that and she kind of went with that a little bit. But all the main ideas were there. And that's what we were trying to do as well. I knew there were certain elements in the show that we need to bring in extra lighting for. Um to light the line, to light the those the thought lights that they they call them at you know, the pools of light, the purple pools of light for each of the seventeen actors, um, and Farron's original concept for the show was basically sort of three layers of lighting. There was the reality of the rehearsal, but the actual audition. There was uh, the the sort of the musical numbers that were part of the audition piece, but also then there were this, these internal uh, reflection montage moments that were, uh, could really choose a lot of color to take us out of the original space, right? And turned into something much bigger. Um, 
and then at the end of each number, it pulls back in and becomes the uh, the line or the rehearsal hall again. So uh, being able to track that through and make sure we could do all those elements uh, was really important. And the, the actual details might not have been you know perfect, um, but having the huge blasts of like colored side light that we could use to, to do those big numbers like at the ballet and hello 12 and uh, I'm in the finale and uh, having Luis there who really understood what numbers were supposed to be, you know, and I was like frantically going through we have videotapes I found on YouTube and I got the script from the encores version that Kim Billington had just lit. So I knew where the, cause Luis knew where he sort of knew what was supposed to happen, but he didn't have a script that had the cue numbers in it. So like, where does this cue actually happen to make it work? Right. And, you know, cause it's sometimes when you do a cue, it's not about where you call the cue that's important. It's where the cue ends. That's important. Right. right. And sometimes they start in very strange places, but they start in a certain place so that by the end of a musical phrase or something, you're where you want to be. So we had none of that. So I was able to get the script. I was able to, you know, find all these resources and, and get the information. And, you know, we gradually between, you know, a number of different heads thinking about it, figured it out, you know, and I think it was pretty successful. I think people really enjoyed it, you know, and I love doing it. So it was really great. Yeah. So, so thank you. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> so what's next for you? I mean, do you have something? I mean, I know this is a time uh, sitting at home, but, I know. I was supposed to get back on a cruise ship and relight my Mamma Mia on Royal Caribbean because they're changing out all the lighting gear. They do that every 10, 10 years or so. Uh, but that's been postponed. That was supposed right. to be in April. That's been postponed until whenever. I was supposed to do the Tony Awards in June. That has now been postponed again, hopefully not canceled. Um, postponed till probably early fall. Um, some shows at Malloy, which uh, may or may not happen at times they were supposed to happen uh it's just a you know it's a waiting thing you know we have to just wait and see what happens you know i'm teaching at nyu still but i'm teaching by zoom now the rest of the semester is all remote teaching so um it's a whole different way trying to figure out how to do what i do not in the light lab at nyu but rather all remotely is interesting yeah. besides yelling at them for not looking good on zoom <laughs> which I do because this is what the class is about so <laughs> so if you uh limit uh, this is my final question for you what's your uh, you know you what show or performer or whatever what was your aha moment what changed you then said oh this is what i really want to do i mean it might have come late in the game or it might have come early because you you went to college for you know, for something else. Uh, I wish it had come earlier because I would have made a different choice probably. Um, <laughs> but it, probably a chorus line, actually. Seeing a chorus line when it opened, I think, in 1975 made me want to explore performing and dancing more. Um, and uh, getting me into that part of the business a little more strongly. And then... Um, Lighting wise, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, probably working with Ken Billington on the Christmas show at Radio City Musical, because I got to really work with Ken and got, and we're still really good friends. And and he helped me a lot in my career going forward. Um, 
over the years, but he's like an icon in the business, you know, oh, yeah. he's done over a hundred Broadway shows and, you know, including the revival of Chicago and the original Sweeney Todd and, you know, so many others that, he, you know, you can't count them. And he's a gentleman and a scholar and, you know, he's in his seventies and still working and loving it, you know, yeah. and he has a passion for it that very few people have. Um, and he will, you know, do it till it drops. Yeah, what, yeah, which is if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? Exactly. That's how he feels. He's in his office every day, and he just loves the politics of it. He loves the lighting. He loves the prep. He loves the, the just the whole world, you know. You know, so because you are creating a world, you're creating, you know, uh, you know, a whole, uh, you know, vision of of someone's work, and but you're creating an. an for the audience, we walk into a theater and we sit down and we're transported into someone else's world. Right. And and right. and I, I always say, you know, tech can either make or break a show, lighting, sound, all the different elements, because there's so mm-hmm. much that goes involved in it. And and it can really enhance an, a playwright's work right. or it can destroy it. Mm-hmm. And and we've seen both sides of that, which is great. So right. if, you had a, if you had a dream show or a dream role or a show that you could light or even act in or star, what would what would Ed McCarthy just say, this is what I want to do? Um, well, I if I had a dream show to light, it would be probably Sondheim's Follies. Oh. Um, and or Sweeney Todd. Oh, really? They're, they're two of my favorites, and they tell such amazing stories, and they're so atmospheric, and they're all about lighting. Um and I would love to get my hands on those at some point. Um, we'll see. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, we're just going to leave it there for today. Uh, thank you very much, Ed McCarthy, uh, lighting designer extraordinaire. You'll see Ed at and or his lighting designs this summer at Madison Theater. We're probably moving our carousel to the summer, as long, along with All Shook Up. But he'll also be lighting squeal, uh, Squirrel Screams, uh, which is a uh, play that we spoke last week with uh, Lindsay Timminton and Joe Ritchie. So until we talk to you again, we'll keep the seats warm. Thank you. Bye-bye. I want to thank producers Kathleen the Machine Marino, Eileen Swagger Sweeney, and the VP of Advancement Edward the Terrific Thompson. Technical support and editing by Calvin the Great Guevara Flores, graphic designs by Francis Bonson Bonet and Sarah Prensin Palazzolo. 